Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. On today's show, we have local royalty, uh, second timer, Sean Kyle. Uh, he was kind of the first tier, the first guard, one of the first through the door uh, of the musical guests that we've had on the show. And I feel as though that interview gave him a little bit of short shrift because I didn't realize the impact he's had locally, uh, the connections he has locally, the people that he knows and has played with. And as I've gotten to kind of get somewhat of an education in Tampa music, uh, his name comes up quite often, whether it's Scott Anderson from Have Gun Will Travel, Owen Meets, John Nowicki, these people, uh, I'm building kind of a structure uh, a map if you will in my mind of kind of the history of tampa music so that's what i brought him in here to talk about today is kind of pick his brain on where all of this came from and then hopefully touch a little bit on uh going a little bit deeper on what 2021 and and thereafter looks like for local music Uh, i've spoken at length to tom to george and other people about okay live music is going to be difficult for a while, but I think that's just the the very surface level of what we're looking at. So hopefully Sean will kind of get into that with me. Thank you so much for coming by. It's good to be back. My goal is to be the Alec Baldwin. The Alec Baldwin of Barry Legal, oh, or Barry the Tom Lee. Hanks or the John Goodman. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can pick, there's a, there's a Mount Rushmore of uh, comedic yeah. actors you could select, but uh, we're going to, we're going to have a little cardigan made up for you that you Excellent. can, Excellent. a smoking jacket maybe. Um, You've been busy. You've, yeah, there's a lot going on. There's always a lot going on with you. I, 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 you're not on social media quite as much, which is probably a good thing. But I do miss your kind of uh, romantic, you know, esoteric diatribes that uh, I came to know a, a few years ago. Yeah, actually, one of the uh, one of the guys from Sick Hot, Chris, the bass player from the kind of glam rock band sick hot the other day it was like man we saw that thing you posted when you were in saint augustine we're all hanging out together band practice we were spitting out our whiskey and uh he was like what the hell is that like the stuff that i was posting on on uh social media and facebook and it's like this kind of be poet spoken word kind of stuff and i initially started doing that when i was on tour to remind me of what happened almost a travelogue of your yeah yeah and it, and it would be like quotes from people or just like really really quick stream of consciousness stuff like referencing all these different things and places and back when i was a few years back when i was playing like bigger festivals and shows and things like that if there was somebody that was at the show or at the festival or involved in that city at the time they would get the references to the places that i was going and so it almost was- be like a little uh poke if you were and yeah. whoever it was who got to share in that experience yeah. with you. But but also like later on you go back and you read through that stuff and you know we're not carrying around notepads in our pockets anymore so much. We're carrying around a, a, mobile, a cloud a mobile device on the cloud. And yeah. so having that stuff laid out on social media it was kind of almost a reminder because a lot of those things would happen so quickly and you'd be in different cities every day and it would stretch out weeks to months to years and you'd start to lose track of who, what, where, and when. And uh, for some of those adventures, it was good to try to keep better track. Right. But they read, they read in retrospect, they read much uh, 
um, much less like a notepad and more like almost poetry. At that uh, the, I, you know, my my very scant uh, toe dipping into beat writing and poetry. I think I read On the Road and then, you know, I don't know if you what you call Hunter Thompson, but very much similar to that type of, you know, like half finished thoughts strung together to kind of create a bigger picture or, a, or more of a feeling than a maybe a specific picture of things. So I dig it. I, I like it. It was reminiscent. <laughs> I was pretty cool. Um, so you asked me, we, and for people that are listening, we, we probably just did a whole podcast off air, but with each other kind of catching up about what's going on in each other's lives. But uh, the reason I had Sean come in today is one of the great gifts that this podcast has given me, like I said, was it has given me a love affair with local music, the Tampa music scene. And so you have been in that scene for what? When, when would you say you started to play live or become aware of? I'd say like 90 90- Become aware like 95, 96. And who was the royalty at that time locally, if you recall? Like who were the bands that you would see around a lot or what was the what was the scene like then? I was more limited to Tampa back then and uh, I was a kid and I was trying to sneak into shows at um, near the university. So I, I was way underage and uh, some of my older friends were more into like the club scene, the rave scene that was going on. And right. that wasn't something that I really felt. So I more want to like uh, sneak into a place called Casey's Cove. It's long since been gone. But that was like a bar where a lot of USF students would go and drink underage and a lot of the bands would play there. And then also Skipper Smokehouse, um, which would be pretty lenient for under 21s back then. And that's before uh, kind of the social media thing happened. And then there was some kind of flack with uh, with that that caused them to stop doing all ages shows. But they would have the regular weekly shows, be it the Grateful Dead groups or the reggae groups. Um, but then they also had bigger, you know, local following kind of jam and hippie bands. Because if you think of the time period in 95, grunge, grunge was starting to really explode. Right. But there was also this strange college kind of granola. Dave Matthews jam. band type of situation. Yeah. Even before Fish, that, really yeah. kind of just became totally and completely mainstream that that's when all that stuff was merging so uh shout out to like a group like the bohemian swingers or somebody like that that had eddie rosecki fronting that band and eddie was, rosecki is he the one who was in the swing band that used to he's, yeah yeah, he's, yeah and he's still working in saint pete yeah i mean he's he's somebody that you know i i used to look up to that guy way back in the day and then we became friends and we worked together over the years we were in like a short film that won a bunch of awards in a New York City film festival years ago. And so it all kind of all becomes uh, full circle. There is another group that used to play around the area called Rehoboth that was also kind of a jamish sort of widespread panic kind of band. But that's when I first met Mike Tozier, who went on to win all these local awards as like best uh, solo player. And, and um, he actually played a big role in even getting me to be a musician because he worked at a music store and basically instead of telling me, get away from me, kid, you bother me at the music shop. He was like, hey, why don't you check out instead of listening to this? Why don't you check out these blues artists and these like old stuff? Right. Um, and uh, really, really old stuff. And it kind of changed the way that I viewed music because I never listened to that kind of music before. So we talked a little bit off here. We were name checking, have gone, will travel, Will Quinlan, some of these other people. And, you know, yeah. I think Will's been around almost as long as you have, if not longer. about longer. Yeah. Yeah. He was our, he was in a band. 
I forget who was in before. There's Murder the Creek Pagan and Saints. Pagan Saints. and Yeah, yeah. Pagan Saints, when I first uh, started lying about my age and joining bands and trying to play clubs um, at 17, like we, I graduated high school, I lied about my age. I went through uh, a bunch of different one ads in the paper for uh, uh, bands that needed a guitar player and eventually found one that was um, either desperate or silly enough to take me on because I had no idea what I was doing. And I, and I acted like I did, but quickly all of a sudden I'm playing shows with more established artists and I'm just kind of faking Fake it. Fake it you make it. Yeah. yeah. Totally faking it. I mean, I wasn't terrible, but I, I you know, I definitely was one of the least qualified. Turn the guitar down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah wear, wear brighter colored shirts. And yeah. Turn the guitar down. But, um, Will was already in the pagan saints and they were kind of on this pedestal in the local scene is, uh, something that was very special. Um, and an, another group that was, starting to get steam at that time, November Foxtrot Whiskey was Aaron Lepley uh, and Damon Dougherty and and people like that who were part of the USF scene and the experimental music scene. And those things all kind of started to dovetail with uh, the punk scene locally of which. Because there is kind of a, yeah. a dichotomy. There's kind of a, there's kind of a, a punk heavy Tampa history. And yeah. then there's kind of a, I don't know what you want to call it, you know, what, what what's least offensive, like a college rock or a, a, a more of a Americana. Yeah, it folky, you know. became more Americana, but there was a huge Indian emo push here as well, which is where Have Gun came from, because they, the band they were in, uh, the Burke Brothers, was called the Chase Theory. And they were kind of this weird, like, isolated group, like down in Bradenton, Sarasota. So the second the group started getting big enough that we could sell tickets, um, like Will Quinlan, for example, and Pagan Saints, like they got to the point where people were, you know, buying tickets to see them. Yeah. Like in, in his, um, uh, in his later groups, one of which I was in, like it, it was like we sold out the Orpheum, uh, and and all of a sudden when you get to that point, you start trying to cross pollinate with groups from other adjacent towns that are also in that situation. Right. The idea being like they come over and they kind of play on your back and then you go over there and you play on their back. And that's sort of the organic way that a lot of us met is that if we were, you know, lucky enough or devoted enough or, you know, maybe talented enough to get to the point where um, we could supersede playing the brass mug for, you know, beer tickets and get to the point where we could share a bill you know, at one of many venues that frankly no longer exist. Um, but get to the, you know, the New World Brewery was a, a big congregating place for that in Ebor for a long time as well. Uh, due to the size and capacity, the crowbar would be a good example of that now to where you can get to the point where you can sell a hundred tickets or more, depending on what the bill is that you're putting together. Then all of a sudden you start bringing in bands from Orlando and you go to Orlando and then you bring in a group from Sarasota, you go to Sarasota and even just Tampa St. Pete um, for a long time there, there it was a big deal. Okay, we're going to St. Pete to play a show. We're going to Tampa to play a show. Now it's like, you know, it kind of the lines are a little bit more blurred nowadays. On you know, it's not necessarily just a Tampa band or a St. Pete band. So the, the last three minutes of what you just said was fertile with questions that I have. So I'm going to try and remember them. Um, but one of the things that we were talking about is you know. Not to jump ahead and what I wanted to talk about, but the, the, what, is there a future generation of Tampa musicians or, or, or who is that? But going back to what you were just talking about, you kind of were talking about how the scene grew. And from what you're describing, it sounds like it grew organically. There wasn't like a, a, a puppet master or someone designing it. So 
you know, if there's any hope for what what's next locally, the hope is that just because someone doesn't know what it is, that it it may still happen kind of on its own legs. That's something we were talking about earlier off air in uh, in. I'm optimistic but cautious about this because from my experience kind of – I didn't have musical training growing up and uh, I just was one of those kids that, you know, they gave me a guitar and told me to figure it out and after a while and all these other things, I, I kind of did. And then all of a sudden I realized that um, I wasn't just some, you know, kid playing guitar, that I was a songwriter and then I devoted my 10,000 hours to it. But I started off out of the gate going really hard after that. And because of that, I didn't really have a whole lot of mentors aside from those that I stumbled across. Right. Um, and especially back then, it wasn't as easy to connect with uh, new music or other artists. You know, that, that, you know, I'm dating myself, but you would have to wait at the alternative record store down off uh, Fowler Avenue. And you'd have to buy one CD because you've heard that it was awesome or a cassette before that. Right. And you'd wait weeks for the damn thing to show up. I mean, I'm, I remember like ordering Nirvana's Incesticide and I'd never heard it. Right. I just knew that that was the record that I should get, you know, and then, but you have to wait weeks and weeks and weeks. Now it takes us a few seconds to become influenced by all these things. Well, it was the same way with being influenced um, as an artist by other artists or other musicians. Unless somebody went off to college and was plunged head first into this cultural melting pot. In in this area, everything was so spread out that um, it didn't necessarily have the same saturation of creative force, I think, that you would have in, you know, say Athens, Georgia, where everybody's sort of in this like bubble county seat, yeah. together. You know, you didn't really have it. And you also had people from all over the country coming and going. Um, it wasn't quite like that. You had a lot of people that came from here I grew up here that were doing the damn thing here. And when somebody was exceptional, you notice, I think you had Dave Decker yeah. on here. It's, Dave was like one of my heroes when I was coming up in the scene because there was no misunderstanding when you saw that guy on stage that he meant it. He's a spark plug. And yeah, he was willing to give it all, leave give it all, all on stage. Yeah. Like I remember I worked at a music store and he had his guitar brought in multiple times because it kept being smashed, put back together. And, he doesn't even know how he smashed it. Yeah. It's, it was that kind of thing. You would see people it was like, like the that. Iggy Pop of Tampa. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> if you're the Alec Baldwin of Barely Legal, he's the Iggy Pop of Tampa. Yeah, and, and and not for nothing, like he's an example of somebody that can, you know, go to, you know, go through a lot of darkness and then turn it completely around and, and, and completely change his life. And hey, He's and, killing and, it now. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, uh, just, you know, somebody when things look like they, they can't. You know, they're going to be as bad as it's going to be forever. Like the guy's just turned around his life and and I respect the hell out of him. Um, but but like at the time, like I'm saying, like it wasn't that you could just walk out your front door like you were in Brooklyn and, oh, OK, well, there's the Velvet Underground and mm -hmm. now we're all influenced by them. It didn't work like that year. And because of that, uh, right now, when I say I'm cautiously optimistic on the next the next like crop of influential artists or musicians or what have you coming out of this scene, um, I don't see as much of the uh, incubator that we had at the time because there are all these other things to do, of course, but also because back then real estate was cheaper. There, there was kind of a weird stratified college scene going on. There were open mic nights. 
at multiple locations. I never had Every an idea about of the week. Yeomans on Davis Island. What a big kind of huge deal venue that was for people. Yeah, yeah. I mean that place. The one of the I think the second owner from the original owner. I didn't realize Joey Jeff, Redner was the owner of that at one point. Um, fellow named Jeff, who I believe was a truck driver. Uh, when I was like 17 or 18, saw me in an open mic night there and basically offered to give me a gig Yeah, just because like that night I must've had a good night. Um, he, I think he was like one of the first guys to ever give me a gig on my own. And, uh, and he stayed loyal to whatever project that I did from that point forward. And, and, it, and those sorts of things change, um, people as an artist. Like there, there was a, 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 ca- a coffee shop off Drew street, um, called, I think the Java lounge. It's going way back. And if anybody hears this, you saying out there, forgive me. But there was a moment there where myself, uh, Damon Fowler, Rebecca Pulley, Jorn Slain, who for a long time was big in creative loafing, had his own band, put on the Southeastern Music Alliance, which is coming and gone. Um, and, and several other artists from like the Clearwater scene. And then uh, actually Scott Anderson, I'm sure, Burdenfly, his band, he talked about, which got him to Tampa in the first place, went through there. Uh, and, and there was another place called Mother's Milk, which has this very wild and occasionally terrifying history where <laughs> you had, a, you know, the owner wound up going to jail and it's just strange stuff. But these places were like havens for all of these younger artists to get together and to kind of like, you know, peacock a little bit, trade, trade pain a little bit, try to figure out like who we were and what we were doing, but also get perspective on who you were as a musician. I think now we have that on a greater scale, but with people watching each other's videos or each other's streams, there's a different immediacy to it, but there's also less of that community communal feel to it, to where I don't know if there's going to be like a quote Bay Area sound where for a while we were known for like punk and Americana and some hip hop stuff. Right. And then of course, like a certain kind of metal came out of here at one point with the absence and and groups like that, um, the Morbid Angel and all these other people who I used to hang out with. So it's, it's well, they talk they talk about a copy of a copy of a copy. You know, over time, it kind of loses its it, it, its nuance and its texture. And I don't know that that's what's happening here. But you know, two of the big things that I think make today different from when you're talking about is one, as you're mentioning, the the process to record to put out music to be seen by a large group of people is so much easier and that's been talked about to death, but then right. coupling that with COVID and the impact it's had on a stage or the, or taking away a stage for people to do that live, um, you know, is kind of choking off the, the evolution or the growth, or at least it would seem, I don't know if you agree, but I, I think that that coupled with real estate values going up and entire, um, uh, scenes age out. It happened in Gainesville and um, a lot of the people that were kind of the really invested in the local community in Gainesville, Florida to make that scene what it was, which got groups like Against Me and all these other groups to come out. Right. Um, and less than Jake, like a lot of those people got to the point where they're like tired of fighting in the trenches and tired of living like gutter punks. You get to a certain you know? age and, and, and you get they, tired. <laughs> but but also there was a disconnect there, I think, with a lot of the younger groups that were coming up in that scene. And 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 some of the, you know, some of them just frankly weren't as good as the other crop of groups that were coming out. I, I don't know why that happens. Um, what I can say is the the one of the other things that I've noticed that we're missing right now is that there are very few places that allow access for 
um, younger players, for teenage players, for players that aren't going to make the bar money, quote unquote. By that not existing for those players, they don't it's not get like a farm in. league for yeah, yeah. exactly. If, yeah. if there's if there's no like AAA, the team, the big team, will never be successful, right? Because otherwise, you're just banking on people moving in. This isn't Austin, Texas. It's, it's not like that. And even Austin, Texas, like at this point, isn't Austin, Texas. So it, it's, Nashville's Austin, Texas. <laughs> Nashville's like L.A. right yeah, now. Yeah. Last time I was there, half the people I met were from L.A. Yeah, it was weird. I. I, I don't – I'm not like saying that like we're going to have some kind of – Dark ages. Yeah, dark yeah. ages here culturally. Obviously, that's not the case. The culinary scene here is out of control. There's all these other things that are going on here. The beer, the beer scene is pretty – The beer scene is unbelievable. Yeah. And, and But gentrification has its price. And the second that a place has to pay the bills above all else, it winds up removing um, their ability or their desire or their acumen to give a chance or to take chances to help make fertile uh, ground for a particular kind of culture to grow. Instead, they're just chasing whatever is going to make them the most money. Right. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus for that. I mean, it is how it is. I've seen it happen in other places and, and this just happens in my hometown. But uh, I do see that affecting the local creative community um, to where if you can't, have a warehouse party where you have both bad art and good art and a mixture of bad artists and good artists and get all these people together, which right now isn't even an option, of course. Right. But if it were, um, those sorts of larger level mashups that used to happen on the regular, because I think that there was less to lose uh, as far as taking the chance financially, those have been happening less and less. Now it's got to work for you yeah, to do it. It's, it's going to have been, to hit. It's been made smaller and smaller. I mean, to, to credit, like there are like smaller places that were doing that. There are like brew pubs that were doing that. There were smaller cap venues that were doing that. But I'm talking about there was a moment in time where everybody was talking about something like Gala Carina. And that was an entire cigar loft building that was empty, that was filled. Every floor was filled with different artists and different music, different lighting. It was like a, a happening. Yeah. Like a a movement. Almost. Totally. Yeah. And we haven't had that going on in a very long time. Like I was in the show Showtel. I was in Gala Carina two or three times uh, and worked with the people that put it on. I was in Showtel, which was in uh, JSG Boggs, the n- notorious pop artist who copied money by hand and was on 60 Minutes. At one point, when I first got out of high school, I was his assistant. And I had no idea who I was even working for at the time. I just figured he was some interesting pop artists in sure. my hand. But the guy basically took over the Tahitian Inn on Dale Mabry and got on front page news. And every single hotel room was rented out by an artist. And that's how the show was. And it was packed. But it was like higher level artists mixed with lower level artists like myself at the time. Um, not having both somebody that's willing to sidestep convention to make something a scene. And also having the resources to do that or the time or the social equity to do it. Um, and then, of course, coupled with COVID and everything like that, basically taking the wind out of everybody's sails right now. 
I mean, it, you know, it would be easy to say, oh, we're going to enter this cultural dark ages. I don't see it. I see, I see the Bay Area reinventing itself, but I think it's going to look different from how it's looked before. Well, it was starting to, before COVID, kind of go that way. You know, there was a lot of talk of Vinick and what was happening, you know, along the river. There was, you know, potentially the rays coming over and a lot of Ebor getting built up around that. Um, you know, the heights and the restaurants and the beer scene. I mean, it, everything was kind of going in that direction. And now, as most people's lives, it's kind of been put on pause. Uh, the, the one thing that kind of gives me a glimmer of hope and not to be too melodramatic is that I think it was Jeff Goldblum who said life finds a way. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, art finds a way. Music finds a way. You know, you look at. You look at art in Egypt, you know, those things stood the test of time. Art in Nazi Germany, those things stood the test of time. You know, music through slavery, you know, in the Bible Belt and, and, and you know, church music, you know, it, it, you know, almost like a diamond, a cold a diamond, a pressure kind of something even better comes out on the other side. So I'm, I'm, that's my romantic hope here, but the I one- agree. Well, but I think the rules are, are the rules had already changed. Um, this conversation I've had with some other musicians in the last two years, which is, well, now what? Because um, whatever the dream was when I started was dramatically different from what it is now. Uh, and I was lucky enough and continue to be lucky enough to make a living in music. And I was lucky enough to go from playing local dives and coffee shops and loving the hell out of playing local dives and coffee shops to playing like large festivals with tens of thousands of people there. Not necessarily there to see me, but um to, to go through all of that different machinations of the music industry in general and getting to, you know, stand on Fifth Avenue at um, the agency group or, you know, United Talent Agency now and like shake hands and get signed and do all that stuff and have Sonic Youth's lawyer and all this insane stuff I've been through. Um, you start to see a pattern that emerges and it doesn't matter if you're at an upper level or if you're playing, you know, a local beer pub, technically speaking right now, musicians are faced with, um, an obvious change of what the rules are to entry to what we're supposed to be doing to quote, be successful, whatever that means at whatever level. And it's the same, no matter what level you're on. You right now are expected to not just be able to self-perpetuate your own music, which means that you pretty much have to be a producer engineer, understand how to use a MacBook, understand how to use recording interfaces, understand then, though, how to do marketing, how, what a great press photo is and why, you know, what, yeah. what um, understand all this digital and graphic work. Uh, you you know, know, wear all the hats. Yeah, exactly. And then on from there and it gets more and more extreme. You have to understand social media marketing. You have to understand how to write bios and press. You have to understand how to perpetuate these sorts of shows live. Even if you're playing a brew pub, it's like a, a joke is like, you know, it's the only industry where, you know, for a $200 paycheck, I can roll in with $15,000 worth of equipment right? and, and have to know how to use all of it and have to know like 400 songs. Right. And have to be a class level player to not get undercut or get fired from the gig. Right. It, it's it, in a way it seems like it's madness, but now we just take it for granted. And and I think the younger players that are coming up already know that. A lot of them already realize it because they don't have. They don't like, know anything different. They don't know anything different. Like I've 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 done production work with some younger players who are like eighteen, nineteen, twenty, mid twenties. 
and they're just now really getting really, really good and releasing really good music. And they're starting to see their careers work. And, uh, that was the first conversation I had with them. It's like, that's awesome. You, you know, you're well rehearsed, you're a great musician, you have some vision, you have a look, you have an attitude, things look awesome for you. However, hate to break it to you. You're also going to have to do all of this other stuff. You're basically going to have to be a multimedia, um, you know, more competent at multimedia work than somebody that had a master's degree in it five years ago, right? just to be a musician and, 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 and work within the industry. Obviously that's not the way that it's going to be for everybody. There'll be some people that come up and they're related to a Coppola and they get a record deal and they don't have to lift a finger. Right. Um, but the reality of the longevity of being a musician or quote unquote, an artist, whether you're a painter, whether you're a performance artist, you know, on down the line, um, you have to know all of those things now because really any business now is going to have to know all of those. Well, I mean, that's the way it is for lawyers. You know, most of my friends, you know, we're, we're wearing all the hats, you know, unless you go and work for, I mean, you know, the firms you work for, you've done work for some of these firms. So, you know, unless you work for them, you got to do all that stuff yourself. Um, so this is kind of where I wanted the discussion to go, though, because I have this theory and I, and I touched on it briefly with you earlier. But um, we're hearing that, you know, international, you know, this year we were supposed to have the Stones. We were supposed to have Guns and Roses. We were supposed to have Tool. And I'm sure, you know, other people were going to be coming through. And now it's, you know, the, the, the logic is 2022 at the earliest. So that leaves a a vacuum that could be filled. And it seems like if you want to enjoy live music for the next 18 to 24 months, local bands are going to be where it's at. What are your thoughts on that? So yes, in short, yes. No matter what uh, national international touring is not going to get back online anytime soon. Um, Before, I'd say like when I had to leave Nashville, a, a few, just a few years ago before I kind of came back to, to Florida and I'm like, I've been on the road too long. It's time to reevaluate, maybe settle down, maybe do something else, you know, but I knew that it was time to get off the road because uh, periodically at the very least you need to take a break from it. But up to that point I was working to, with and talking to um, uh, a couple of the biggest artist agencies in the world and my, my agent who I go way back with, who I started a, a music festival app with, with all these other investors and the guys from Jam Cruise. And I've learned how to do different tech work and multimedia work over the years out of necessity, like I was talking about. Uh, and some of it turned into a different job and career. Um, when I came back, I was watching the festival circuit kind of roll back over again because it, you know, some of them had gone out of business, but it seemed like just as quickly, every, everybody was piling back in because it seemed like the music festivals and the larger touring stuff was the most economical way to bring a lot of these artists together in a package uh, regionally by region. And it looked like Florida was going to start getting more of that again as well. And then of course, um, COVID happens in the first week, you know, I call my buddy uh, in LA and um, I want to name names, but it's, but he's like, man, we're just pushing it. So this would have been like February or like whenever I, I got hired to go shoot a music video for somebody in France and Paris and I got back and I was like, saw what was happening there. And I'm like, oh shit, man, things are about to get, things are about, about to get really bad and uh, sold my guitar collection and all this other stuff. And anyway, called my friend in California and I'm like, what are you, for the agency that I used to be on, I'm like, what are you guys doing? 
and he's like, we're just, we're just booking everything for summer. So yeah. this is like February, March. Sure. So they were just like, well, you know, maybe it'll be done by spring, summer. So they just canceled all the dates for winter and just pushed all of this big stuff, like huge national touring artists back by a few months. Um, fast forward, you know, of course, South by Southwest gets canceled that month. And then by the end of March, they're like, ah, the end of summer. So if you can imagine all these giant artists that you, that you love, that you look forward to and the, in the club level ones like Ty Seagal and all these other groups. And you imagine like national touring groups, I think King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard and all these cool bands were supposed to tour America this year. They have to plan these tours years in advance sometimes because it takes that long to do the routing in the clubs for international bands, secure visas, do all this other stuff and forget about the festivals. I mean, these things are like, you're having to get banks and lawyers and all these people. Insurance. I mean, and, yeah. insurance, you know, you're, you're having to secure people to put up stages. I mean, it's such a, it seems simple when you go and party at one, but it's such a huge undertaking that it takes, you know, it takes like a year of planning in advance, knowing already what's going to happen because maybe you've done it before. All of a sudden, all that stuff got wiped out. And then, you know, just a few months ago, it's like the last conversation is like, yeah, 2021, maybe summer. So already, and then after that, other people I know that were on these big agencies, agents, the agencies themselves are crumbling because they were so well, huge. Well, the lifeblood, I mean, where these people made their money, you know, the venues, the places you would tour at are, you know, like Tom's talked tirelessly about, you know, it's drying up, you know, it's not going to be worth it to tour Florida because all the places you used to be able to play are going to be gone. So not only do we have... Um, now all of these tours and festivals and all these artists that we these nationally touring artists that we we love and we think of that are playing these shows and uh, not only is that all going to be canceled for the foreseeable future uh, and they're not even planning now on it until like past summertime maybe um, the the reality is the larger agencies like UTA and all these other big agencies are are losing agents that are going off and starting smaller boutique agencies as if they were in the 1990s all over again. Right. Because they see the scalability of what they're doing right now being totally disruptive. And frankly, I don't think, I don't think anybody expects the industry to go back to the way it was pre-COVID. Not the same. It, it may, you know, certain levels of stuff, the smaller clubs that can host regional local talent. Um, I think for the foreseeable future, we're going to be looking at, yeah, Giant shows like the Stones will come back. You know, people like J.J. Gray, they're already playing like amphitheater tours again, but they're regional, mm -hmm. southeastern. Right. Um, you know, big branded stuff like Pretty Lights and things like that, Austin City Limits, things like that that are well identified. Yeah, they're going to come back. Will they be the same as they were? I think uh, Gasparilla music will survive. I, I don't see why not. They spent yeah. so much time and money making it a thing. Sure. You know, it. it, it a lot of those... There's a lot of great people that are involved in making these things, but after time, those people can come and go and we're left with the name and the brand and the idea of what it is, maybe a location. You know, we see that happening with festivals that have been around a long time, like Lollapalooza or whatever. The people that were originally running it, it's a completely different world than it was back then, but we know the name. Yeah. Know? I mean, will festivals happen again? Absolutely. Are we going to get in this year national touring and all these? No, definitely not. So yeah, I mean... What's going to happen first is musicians that are local, regional, are going to be put to work. Um, it's already happening 
at the kind of college bars and things like that, they already have music again. You've played a, a couple shows yeah. recently. Yeah. And you've played solo and then you've also played the Laurel Canyon thing, or is it all under the Laurel Canyon moniker? Or? I'm not a hundred percent sure what I'm doing. Okay. And, and, <laughs> and fortunately for the moment, um, it's a good time to not exactly to not know. <laughs> yeah. It's a good time to like woodshed because creatively, uh, I had an idea of something that I wanted to do if I was going to make, you know, the Bay Area my home base. And for a long time there, I was touring out of D.C. area and I was mean, I was playing New York more than I was playing Florida. Um, and, uh, and then I went down to Nashville and I was cutting demos in Nashville with people from Third Man Records. And I was bouncing to Los Angeles to sing about moving to L.A. and or Austin. OK, maybe I'll go to Austin. And then it's like it, it all comes full circle. And frankly, like after being everywhere, this is a good place to be right now. The problem is, this is also a place that's in a bunch of flux right now. It's kind of like Austin was 15 years ago or Nashville was five years ago. It's like things are coming up, being built so quick. Um, we're not sure what's going to be paved over and what's not. We're not sure who's going to come and unify creative people together or maybe act as a mouthpiece for a platform to represent the local community. We don't, you know, Tom, Tom DeGeorge is somebody that does that. Uh, but we don't have a lot of people that do that. Um, and, uh, everything's so shaken up right now. I, I mean, I do think that the local scene will be community wise will be strong. Uh, as far as fresh blood, it's whoever wants to step up to the plate because I, I know that the, the desire for live music is already there. The college kids all want to hear live music and, and the, the, the tendency to wanting to hear live music has never been more demographically diverse which kind of blows my mind. Well, not, not completely outside your wheelhouse, but kind of a little bit left of center. I think, I think if, if there's one style that's kind of going strong, it's kind of the hardcore punk. Uh, you know, there's a lot of horse whip meat wound. And a lot of these bands locally are putting out new albums or gaining popularity or gaining notoriety. So that type of music still seems to be, Going along, although, and I, I had pl planned a show for December at Tom's place, what it quickly became clear is how do you do a hardcore show in, yeah. in the midst of COVID? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's not a type of music where you can sit at a high top and, and drink your, you know, your Gibson. <laughs> you you got to, you know. I think in general, times like this are uh, creatively fertile times for writing, um, for writing, especially for punk, especially for outsider music, especially for hip hop. Um I've always, you know, I've, I'm not really involved in either of those scenes heavily, but I've respected and been lucky enough to be friends with a lot of people that are. And uh, I've always seen that coming out of some kind of tumult like this, the writers and the artists that have their ear to the ground and, and they're in the trenches um, and they're marching, you know, they tend to come out of it with a bit more vision than, you know, those of us that are trying to polish some masterwork. Right. You know, there's, there's this sort of thing lends itself to immediacy. And frankly, the new way that we digest music lends itself to immediacy as well. I'm not discrediting somebody doing a concept record either. I mean, hell. But by the time we might finish it, there's already another thing to pay attention to. Was it, did you produce the concept record for Have Gun or did you do the one after that? I did the, I did the concept yeah. record for Have Gun. So speaking of writing music and, and, and pr production, new music now, are you doing any of that? Are you writing at all? Are you producing I, either for yourself or for somebody else? I have a, I have a couple records for people that I've been working on. The kind of all-star band, Navin Avenue, which has members of Duke, it's Dukes of Hillsborough, Radar Men, uh, Flat 
Dan Lee and, and um, Shay Krispinski fronts the band. Um, it, like it's it's kind of a, a writer's concept record that's based around a book, and it's pretty much finished. We just have to do a final mix. But I'm actually, um, you know, I'm, my studio is all in a storage unit right now. I'm about to move and trying to find where I want to be for the next year via Tampa or St. Pete. Um, but yes and no, it makes it hard for me to go into a studio and book time and, and and do that kind of thing. First of all, because everybody's preoccupied and everybody's budgets for whatever they're going to be doing has been dried up. Um, I, I kind of gave my reel to reels to, uh, on permanent loan to Mr. Rob Ossington, who's an amazing musician, guitar player. He was in band of sorrows and he has a great studio that, um, we, we share a similar view on vintage gear and, um, we've worked together. I've had him playing groups of with me and I'm, I'm hopefully going to be playing on his record pretty soon. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, as a songwriter, I'm basically looking at, um, this has given me time to take a step back and say, man, I have hundreds of songs that are sitting around that need to be done. I mean, truth be told, I probably have three records worth of material, different sorts of stuff right now that needs to be finished and released. Right. But it's hard to see where that fits into the grander scheme and, and all the, all the best laid plans that we may have had before COVID happened, obviously that's been derailed. Like I, I made it no secret. I was like talking to JT Brown and some other people about this that I'm like, I really want to start in almost like Almond Brothers influence group that kind of takes it back to where everybody can play their asses off, but there's actually songs. Right. And I wouldn't mind taking something like that on the road. I, I think I talked to when I first met George Pennington and we were kind of, feeling each other out for who we were as musicians. I was, he's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I think that's what I want to do. Yeah. I think, and actually he, he does something in that vein as well. He's very talented. He's kind of does something in every vein. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's, he's just, he's just a super, super talented guy. Um, but, uh, for me, a lot of times art gets derailed by what it could be as far as fitting into, um, a touring capacity or a, uh, uh, a bigger capacity as far as, it's hard to separate yourself and make sort of a bedroom record if what you've been doing for so long has been so concerned with how to get on college radio, right? You know, and how to tour nationally, right? Like, God forbid I ever like had gotten concerned with being on mainstream radio. Um, I'd, then I'd, I'd be completely useless. Um, then you can look at people like Jeremy Gloff who just put put out two records every year, you know, and yeah. it doesn't matter what type of music it is. It doesn't yeah. matter what, what it's about. It doesn't matter what audience it's intended for. It's just, this is what I'm feeling. I'm going to put it out without thinking too much about it. And I, res- I respect, I respect the hell out of that. Um, and, and, and part of me looking at my royalty statements, like, you know, I always joke and say before, before um, MP3s and Spotify, you know, your royalty statement would be thousands of dollars. And then after Spotify, your royalty statement is hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And, uh, but I remember distinctly a few different local artists. I, I know that Half Gun's output has been really impressive. Matt Burke's a great writer. And, and I know that for a while there, when we were all on tour together, we were on the same agency uh, and we were touring different cities, if not together, but on the same routes that I, you know, I remember talking to them about like, you know, their album sales and things like that, but also their plays, their plays on radio and other things like that. And a lot of people don't understand exactly um, how... How to measure everything. Yeah, well, the casual listener to music, I think, even if they see a group that's on MTV or something, you know, or, or uh, you know, they're playing these college music festivals, like, oh, those guys must be really successful. But a lot of times, like, our money was made 
not only from playing live, not only from merch sales, but we would get mechanical sales anytime a song was played on the radio, right. even small radio stations. So one of my last groups, like we were top 50 on college radio. Like there was a moment where I was above David Bowie's Black Star in certain markets. Oh, wow. And I was like, screenshot that. That's awesome. Yeah. But that was, you know, that lasts for a certain amount of time and that goes away. If you're not constantly releasing records that are getting to that level, that money kind of comes and goes. And none of us are getting rich doing this until it gets to, you know, unless we license a song to Coca-Cola or something, you know, that's not really a goal per se, but. Um, it's a labor. I mean, it's certainly a labor love. I'm, I'm lucky enough to be right up the road from uh, Keith Olray at Microgroup. Oh, yeah. and so every time I threaten to have a band that I want to finance pressing a record for, he promptly talks me out of it. He said, let me take you to the back room and show you all the boxes of records that yeah. I press for people that, you know, you can't give away, you know, and he's like, no one's going to do a small batch run. So you're going to have to press 3000 records. You're going to spend $5,000. And if you sell a hundred of them, you know, then what are you going to do with the rest? You know? And so it's, it's interesting that it, it's not financially a sound, you know, business to be in. Yeah. Unless you hit the lottery, you know. I remember him. Uh, he's another. He's another guy that's been around for an eternity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've always admired him and respected him, not just as a player, but as somebody that's been consistent in his convictions. And um, he was somebody that, you know, he had. He's always had really strong views about the industry. He's lived some of it. He's done a lot of it, and uh, he's been encouraging to younger players for the most part, but also sobering. Where it's like, I remember him talking, I forget what band it was. I wouldn't say it if I did, but um, actually I do. <laughs> <laughs> You're still not going to say it. <laughs> I'm yeah. still not going to say it. Uh, a, a group that frankly, all of us believed in, not from Tampa. Um, but but Keith uh, was like, hell yeah, I'll put that record out. And I think he pressed vinyl and it took like years for him to break even Yeah. from it. Yeah. You know, like it finally one day. It finally broke even. I'm in the black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. After how many years, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I don't even think the band was a band anymore. Right. You know, uh, I remember there was another record label that um, was doing distribution for me called 24-Hour Service Station, Marshall Dixon. And he was one of those guys that was financing bands like way back in the 90s, like Rosewater or Elizabeth or somebody like that. It was, you know, if somebody had been around long enough, they would know who they are. But, um, but yeah, I, I remember it was the same thing. It's like the label finally broke even after X amount of right. years from pressing the record. I mean, that I'm not, I'm not making light of exactly how uh, difficult that makes things for any of us that have decided to do this as either our primary passion or God forbid a living. But it, it simply means that the facts are the facts. The industry's changed. It's not going back. We knew that already. We, we know that we have to diversify our skill set to make us able to uh, not just be somebody that's yelling at a waterfall, yeah. you know, and um, because there's so much music all the time, most of it is not going to make a difference in, in the larger cultural landscape or the even regional cultural landscape and, and how, how to position yourself to make it to where if you do come up with something that's a great body of work and you do have the ability to get it further out there than its reach. If you don't prep yourself to be able to do that in some way and have that also as part of the plan, then it's just going to be relegated. Person in the wind, yeah. You know, it, it'll never be listened to. Well, so that so uh, th this was kind of one of the last things I wanted to ask you about, only because I have court in twenty minutes. <laughs> but uh, 
I was arguing, I think it was there and Marco on Facebook about Spotify. And, you know, there was the news somewhat recently that they were like dialing down even further how much money they were paying to artists. And with Spotify, you know, there's been two bands, uh, a band from Clearwater called Next Season and then Elliot Mayo's first band, Escapist, that I recently the producer of this show helped me get on Spotify. And I understand why Spotify is the devil for big artists who make money off of selling and listening to music but as a delivery system for smaller artists i feel like it's there's not another game in town so you know as as evil as spotify is that's the easiest way for me to share music even over bandcamp or, or youtube or whatever else with people so it does have a place i think even if more helping smaller and local bands get out there as you're saying i i can't I basically got to a certain point where I was a super idealist in the industry and that uh, both infuriated people around me and also allowed me to get involved in certain scenes that blew up that I didn't expect. You know, I didn't expect me and Jason Isbell getting so drunk he, his band couldn't play would possibly have him write a song about Ybor City. I didn't expect, uh, you know, to be standing around basically with all the people that started like the next psychedelic revolution and then now Tame Impala and all these people are huge. Like none of us ever expected that to happen while we were there. Um, that being said, a lot of those bands became immediately exponentially bigger the second that that broke because people could access their music on Spotify in a matter of moments. But those bands made money because what they were doing was so cool and unique and different that the second somebody heard it, they wanted to buy the T-shirt. They wanted to buy the record. Well, I don't go to the they, concert. Yeah, they yeah. wanted to go to the concert. They signed up for it. And that's my point. Yeah, that's... If anything, it's... Spotify is taking the place of the radio. The CD was already obsolete by the MP3. The concept of ownership has changed. It's not going to go back. And in fact, it's going to affect every single damn industry that we know. The, the idea of ownership of software already has gone subscription the idea of ownership of a car may be changing very soon so so yeah I, I mean really like do i do i think that spotify is a great thing do i think their business practices are awesome no i don't um uh, and it's gotten worse over time and i don't know how aside from like antitrust laws and regulation they'll be able to wrench out uh because i don't see a lot of the larger level artists being able to unify via all the disparate labels and things like that to, to force Spotify and other delivery atmospheres to give us better percentage points. But to be fair, unless you get to a larger level, your amount of plays aren't really adding up to that anyway. Right. And, and, and as somebody that was on, you know, getting royalty checks from radio, those royalty checks weren't that big either. It's kind of the same thing. If you get included on a playlist on Spotify and you have everything else planned, you have the record release planned, you have cool merch, you have great videos online, and you're planning when all this hopefully uh, gets under check as far as the pandemic goes, you're planning on going on tour. Yeah, that's just part of the delivery system for people to find out about you, maybe become your biggest fan. And another thing that's, I just, I was, I had dinner with a guy who's huge in the blockchain, and he was talking to me about garbage pail kids and evidently oh, tops has market tested baseball cards through garbage pail kids and a blockchain thing. And evidently this is becoming something that people like Lady Gaga and Beyonce are doing where there's like this blockchain limited release 
single video whatever that they're putting out there and it's like exclusive to the owners of this other thing so i see that as the whole new problem or mountain to climb or whatever is you know because that seems to be invading everything you know between real estate car sales stocks you know you're talking about ownership of things it used to be that ownership meant a mountain of paperwork and a seven-day turnaround or however and now it's like okay i own the stock okay now i don't okay now i own the you know so it's it's interesting how that's all going to play out and right right now obviously all of these things are hyped up to abandon because they're not fully integrated and seamless yet or understood yeah exactly i mean but the hedge fund managers i hear are starting to include them in the portfolio which they're seeing as kind of a changing of the tide getting it out of the dark alleyways of money and kind of more reputable white stocking discussions of you know diversification of your por- portfolio that stuff's all fun and games when people have time on their hands. Yeah, you know, like right now, again, uh, we b- before we got on record, it was like I, I mentioned the only benefit. This is something I've said to other musicians that I've had powwows with. That um, the only benefit to the whole pandemic thing is the fact that it's forced everyone to take a step back and take pause. Yeah, and and how we've handled that has been different depending on who we are, what our you know culture is, what our income level is, what you know our, our social. Uh, you know, beliefs are, you know, what our ethics are even it's, and it's panned out weird ways. And it happened to coincide with this election and people marching in the streets and um, different sorts of unification, some good, some bad. It's been strange to watch. And, but as an artist, it's forced a lot of us to not necessarily sit on our hands, but to reevaluate how uh, the future is going to be. Because we can't work or distract ourselves with, you know, the tour, the travel or the thing. And it all blurs together and the world becomes, you know, from the airplane, you look down, it's a big patchwork quilt while you're on the way to the music festival. You're distracted by all these things. Now we're not distracted. It's quiet. You know, we, unless we marched, we sat at home and watched it. You know, it made us think about what was going to happen next. Um, Pretty soon things are going to open back up again. This isn't going to last forever. And I think those of us who have taken the time to take pause, to reevaluate what's going to happen next, how it works, and how, if, and when we will be able to fit in to what's going to happen next is going to determine who's going to be able to rise to the top of that and whose voices that we're going to hear and whose music is going to be the soundtrack for whatever the next five or six years look like. Um, And, you know, Maybe, maybe some of us locally get that right. I hope that we. I hope so. I hope so because I've I've fallen in love and I'm not turning back. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. You've always been such a friend. You're always available when I need you to fix my (laughs) fucked up studio and and every other thing. Uh, I I, hopefully next time your third time on, I want to get you to play though for me. All right, yeah. If if you'll think about it. Thank you so much, Sean. I really appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck with everything. Thank you, brother. All right.